This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is brought to you by Audible, a leading provider of downloadable audiobooks. Get a free audiobook download when you sign up for a 30-day free trial over at audible.com galaxy. Today's show is also brought to you by Adam Tickets, movie going for the 21st century. Adam Tickets is a free app that lets you plan movie outings with your friends and also lets you pay for tickets and snacks ahead of time, letting you skip the long lines. Get $5 off your first order by using the promo code GALAXY. So again, the app is called Adam Tickets, A-T-O-M Tickets, and don't forget to use the promo code GALAXY. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 238 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Bruce Sterling. He's the author of novels such as Gizmatrix, Love is Strange, and Island in the Net, and he's also the editor of the seminal cyberpunk anthology Mirror Shades. Together with William Gibson, he wrote the classic steampunk novel The Difference Engine, and his nonfiction books include Hacker Crackdown, Tomorrow Now, and The Epic Struggle of the Internet of Things. His articles appear in Newsweek, Nature, and The New York Times, and he's been featured on TV shows such as ABC's Nightline, BBC's The Late Show, and CBC's Morningside. And we'll be speaking with him today about his new book Pirate Utopia, an alternate history set shortly after World War I. And today's show is brought to you by Audible a leading provider of downloadable audiobooks. I've been an Audible customer for over a decade and have bought over 160 audiobooks through the site. At one point, I actually had three different Audible accounts because I was going through audiobooks so quickly, so I can definitely state from experience that it's a great site that sells lots of great audiobooks. If you want to give them a try, you should head on over to audible.com galaxy, where you can get a free audiobook download when you sign up for a 30-day free trial. And if you're a Bruce Sterling fan, which seems likely if you're listening to this episode, then I just want to point out that Audible's library includes the classic steampunk novel The Difference Engine, which Bruce wrote with fellow science fiction legend William Gibson. Audible's library also includes Bruce's novels Zeitgeist and The Caryatids, and all three of those books are available now as unabridged recordings. So again, just head on over to audible.com galaxy and download any one of those books for free when you sign up for a 30-day free trial. All right, and so now let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Bruce Sterling. Welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, man. Okay, so it says in your bio that you live in Austin, Turin, and Belgrade. So I was just curious about how you settled on Turin and Belgrade as your second and third homes. Uh, well, you know, I, I married a Serbian woman. So that, that counts for glamorous Beograd. And then she and I were invited to uh, Torino some years ago to uh, be the curators of an electronic art fair, uh, which is called Share Festival. So, uh, you know, we were here for a year working on this art fair, and we're still on their, their jury and board of directors. So, you know, after that, we just decided that um, Italy suited both of us better than uh, either of our native countries do. <laughs> and so what sort of a science fiction scene is there in Italy and in Serbia? Uh, you know, in, in Serbia, they've got, uh, you know, a little fantastica thing. But, uh, you know, it used to be bigger because there was more Yugoslav publishing going on. Whereas, uh, you know, in Italy, you've got, well, I don't know, well over 100 years of kind of fantasy writing, fantascienza, they call it. Uh, you know, there was a, uh, there were sort of pulp magazines in the 1950s, 60s. They were kind of, um, you know, similar to mainstream American publications of the 50s and 60s. And they're like national fantascienza conventions and, you know, some pretty well-known fantascienza colleagues of mine and, um, I actually take those guys quite seriously. I, I really enjoy the uh, Italian approach to fantasy writing. So in your author photo in this book, you're standing in front of something that says Italo Calvino. What, what is that exactly? Well, that's the uh, neighborhood library here. I mean, that, that, that particular Calvino library is about, you know, 500 meters away from my front door. And of course, it's named after Calvino because he's a Turinese writer. He was... Uh, spent a lot of time here working for a publishing house and was known for, they've got a lot of his papers there and books and so forth. Mm -hmm. So I've heard, I've heard you talk about cosmic comics in particular or something. Is that your favorite Calvino or? Uh, you know, I, I actually like the short stories better. You know, I, I think they're more experimental. And of course I, I, I like to write short stories myself. Um, I don't know. I mean, 
I mean, there's there's Calvino, the critic. He wrote Why I Read the Classics, which I think is a really good kind of argument in behalf of literature. And I like his letters a lot. I think, you know, I, I'm i not super fond of his – well, actually, I am super fond of his work. But uh, I'm even happier to sort of get under the guy's skin and see how he really thought about things. Hmm. I mean, it was interesting in this book because you say that in Italy, it's kind of like the science fiction mystery and historical fiction is all one genre. Uh, well, I, I wouldn't say it's like that. I would just say that like genres don't actually work the way in Italian language publishing that they work in, in other forms of publishing. And you, you really have to have a pretty well-developed continental-sized market to be able to afford genres. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, they're really kind of rare birds you know and you have to have like a lot of muscle and a really big consumer base just to have you know separated fandoms so you know people in um people in italian fantascienza tend to read a lot of english language style science fiction in translation uh and they read you know some french science fiction and some german and you know maybe a little bit of russian but um, they don't really have – I mean, Fantascienza, as we know it, is more like San Diego Comic-Con style fandom than, you know, like, like a literary science fiction fandom traditionally in the U.S. Yeah. And you said that there's a much different character to Fantascienza in certain, some cities versus others? I think so, yeah. I mean, I was a little bit surprised in coming to Italy to find out they had – so much of what they call campanilismo, which is, you know, a regional loyalty to the bell tower of your town, right? But, uh, you know, it's like the Balkans in some ways. I mean, it, it was like seven different nations or states before like the 1860s. So it's it's a younger nation than the United States is, even though the cities are very old. Yeah. Well, so, okay, so you've been traveling then a lot, obviously, between Italy and Serbia. And so on the way, you pass through Croatia. So tell us about how you got interested in the history of Rijeka, I guess you would say. Yeah, Rijeka. Uh, well, you know, I, I knew about this particular political upheaval that it, that it happened in, in Rijeka because uh, it's, it's rather famous in anarchist circles. I mean, it's just, uh, I mean, Rijeka is not that big a town, but it was a, a, a city that just sort of had this paramilitary upheaval and literally defied the whole world. So I had always wondered sort of exactly what went on there and what the heck these guys thought they were doing. And I'd been through the town a number of times and I, you know, picked up a little bit of historical material there, kind of got a feeling for the lay of the land. And then finally I decided, you know, one day uh, that I was just going to kind of knuckle down there and really try to reimagine it and, and describe it. Well, I mean, for people who don't know, could you just say a little bit more about what what happened there and why is it famous in anarchist circles? Uh, Well, you know, I mean, a lot of people say that Rijeka was the cradle of fascism. And, you know, in in some ways it was because a lot of the guys who became big wheels in the Italian fascist movement were kind of gun-toting, swaggering, tough guys in, in Rijeka, right? But there was also just a lot of other weird stuff going on in Rijeka that was not fascism and could have sort of moved into you know, a lot of different directions, anarcho-syndicalism, leftism, you know, Trotskyite, whatever. There could have been a communist upheaval there. I mean, Lenin thought very well of them. Lenin thought that maybe they were going to be the first, you know, genuinely communist revolution in Western Europe and so forth and so on. But, you know, basically it was a, it was an area that the Italians thought they were going to get in the peace settlement and fold into the nation of Italy. But then when they had, when after the United States entered the war, um, those agreements were nullified and there was a completely different, you know, political arrangement. So the, you know, Italian patriots felt cheated and they decided to just sort of invade this town and take it over. Right. And so how does your fictional version differ from the historical version? You know, basically it's got a technologist in it. It's the kind of guy who would have been a reader of Wired magazine at the time. <laughs> I mean, the guy's, you know, he talks like a science fiction fan in a lot of ways. He's actually more like a guy from the maker movement. 
I mean, he's, he's a person who's not a political pirate or a poetic pirate or even a fascist pirate. He's a technology pirate, right? Kind of a hacker figure. And uh, they didn't really have any guys of that caliber in their movement. And I wondered what would have happened if they had. So I decided to invent one. And, and uh, naturally, I made him the hero of my story. Well, actually, why don't you say a little bit more about, because there's a lot of different um, sort of subject areas that feed into this book. So you have the Italian futurists, and you mentioned anarcho-syndicalism. Could you just say a little bit about, just explain those concepts, maybe for people who aren't familiar with them? Uh, well, you know, it's easy to kind of frame them that way. But at the time when people were doing it, they just didn't know what the hell they were doing. I mean, I mean you know, really, I mean, if you were a futurist, you could sort of do anything. And you know, there was there was no real boss to tell you what to do, except for you know uh, uh, Marinetti, who was the founder of of the futurist movement, but kind of famously eccentric and just really a weird guy. I mean, he he was the kind of guy who'd sort of light a fire in the basement and then just sort of wander off diagonally. So there wasn't really a lot of consistency there. But you know, the futurists were an art movement, and basically they just wanted to scrap everything that was in museums and start over with a kind of industrial streamlined high power uh, aggressive very masculine very you know industrial kind of of art that was all about movement and speed and frenzy and daring and you know uh excitement and um uh aggressively conquering problems and brutally dismissing the past and so forth and so on. Uh, but, you know, they wouldn't have been, I mean, as in terms of European art movements, they weren't really that big a deal. I mean, they, they weren't like a bigger deal in expressionism or the Blue Rider in Germany or, you know, Mayakovsky's people in Russia or these other things. The thing that sort of made them notorious is that, um, Mussolini took them under his wing. They became kind of the official fascist art movement. Right. And you say in the book that Mussolini kind of stopped by Rieke, I think it was called, I don't know, I'm not sure to pronounce it, F-I-U-M-E, the city at the time. Yeah, Fiume. Fiume. Um, that he sort of stopped by there and he was, there were, like, there was a lot of sex and drugs and yeah. fascist uh, indoctrination going on. Yeah, well, you know, at the time, Mussolini was just a newspaper editor. I mean, Mussolini was actually a, a guy of the left. He was basically an anarcho-socialist before he had this epiphany and, you know, realized that he could get more done with um, tough guy squadrons of, uh, of you know, right-wing ex-military guys. I mean, you know, he, he wanted to be in power, of course, but he thought if he he thought if he had to be elected, he'd have to have the masses on his side. But then when he realized he could like form squadrons of fascist bullies and just kind of seize power militarily, that was a lot more exciting to him. But at the time of uh of you know this of this Rieka business, as they call it, the Impresa de Fiume, the the Fiume enterprise, uh, Mussolini was not that big a deal. He was just, you know, considered just another young war vet who happened to own a newspaper. Right. And so there are, so there are a bunch of, like you mentioned, anarcho-syndicalism and corporate syndicalism and anarcho-socialism. Um, which of those do you think is important for our listeners to understand to, uh, to understand the context for your book? I mean, I think it's kind of interesting that there actually was an anarcho-syndicalist constitution in, in Rieka. Because, you know, it, it's, a, it's a rather little known document. And, you know, there's, there's a modern political movement here in Italy, which is called the Movimento Cinque Stelle, or the M5S, which is an electronic bulletin board group, basically, bloggers, who just formed a political party, uh, you know, quite some time ago and may succeed in taking power. I mean, they're kind of of the Trump populist camp in a lot of ways. And I once interviewed the guy who was kind of their, you know, ideological uh, organizer. I mean, basically, he was their system administrator. And uh, he and I were talking about this anarcho-syndicalist constitution in Fiume. Uh, and, you know, he, he really knew a lot about it. I mean, his name was John Roberto Casaleggio. 
and he died recently, unfortunately, he, you know, had a stroke and just keeled over. Wasn't that old a guy. Quite a loss to Italian public affairs, I think. Uh, but it interested me a lot that you had this kind of on-the-ground electronic democracy movement that thought of this Fiume document as a kind of living heritage thing, right? And, 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 and you know, it was, it was um, I mean, it, it, might, it might have actually worked as a legal constitution because it kind of it divided society up into kind of 10 different camps or kind of power bases. And instead of being like the legislature and the judiciary and the executive, they were just like 10 different kinds of labor unions, basically. I mean, everything was divided up on by the nature of like people's business activities and what they were doing, right? And then these labor unions would have these summits and they'd kind of, they were supposed to decide where all the money and the venture capital and the resources were supposed to go. And, you know, it wasn't communism and it wasn't capitalism. It was kind of, well, it was anarcho-syndicalism. It was a kind of anarchist labor, labor union dominated imaginary society, you know, just kind of a labor union utopia. And, you know, people often say there's kind of, you know, no alternative to capitalism or, you know, communism is crushed forever. But this really is, you know, a genuine attempt at a, a, a radically alternative kind of society. Right. So this is basically the workers own the factory collectively and they vote on what sort of what they're going to make or what they're going to be paid and things like that. Is that right? I, I think that's the simplest way for us to understand it. But, you know, if you look at the document itself, it's more like this is society and it's an orchestra. And we're we're aiming to give people happy lives, you know, and it's it's all about fulfillment. You know, it's not it's not merely a matter of kind of sitting down and and um, and uh, uh, you know uh, uh, making your numbers for the quarter, right? Um, you know, and it's not it's not a labor union in the sense of like a labor union's trying to get a raise from the bosses because there are no bosses. I mean, the the laborers pretty much are the bosses, and the bosses are supposed to be working on this kind of scheme to um, create a kind of very high kind of poetic and spiritually exalted kind of beautify beautified life right but it's it's uh, it's all about um sort of civilized values and uh you know music and poetry and kind of dramatic exaltation and educating people and equal rights for all genders and colors, that sort of thing. Right. So you say that these people had these, all these big ideas, but in real life, they got crushed pretty quickly. But you say if they had a, a maker type character, like you imagine that it could have led to sort of this diesel punk story is what you call it. Right. Well, you know, there, there are aspects of it that sound rather open source, right? I mean, if you if you listen to guys in the open source movement, and of course I know tons of them, especially Italian ones. <laughs> <laughs> they have they have a similar kind of thing. It's like, well, you know, you guys are like working on your fork, and we're like working on our fork, and you know, we're gonna like complete this, and then you can build on top of the platform, right? I mean, that's 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 rather Rieka sounding. I mean, they're not labor unions, but they don't really have a boss. I mean, if you're like doing all this open source development, nobody really goes and tells you, like. Okay, I'm paying you to go do X, Y, and Z. I mean, maybe they do if you're looking for like working for Microsoft's open source. But in general, it's just kind of these meetings of, uh, you know, guys in the movement who say, you know, it'd be really convenient if our platform had the ability to do X, Y, and Z. And like, who's going to handle that? And like three guys raise their hands and then they're like sent off to, you know, GitHub. <laughs> I mean, could you say a little bit more about why you call the book Diesel Punk? Well, that's something of a joke. I mean, of course, I'm a cyberpunk. And uh, I don't know we cyberpunks didn't make up that name, but we got it and we probably deserve it. And then there's steampunk, which is if you're writing about the Victorian era or the past generally. And atom punk would be stuff that's like written about the space age, so, you know, between like 1940s and 1970s. And diesel punk is, you know, just kind of a term of art for period of World War One. You know, the early sort of industrial combustion era, you no know, early radio or early um, 
after mass production, but kind of before World War II. Right, because the big speculative element in this book, as it were, would be the remote-controlled um, torpedoes, right? Uh, well, those aren't speculative, because there's like one of them in the living room of <laughs> Denunzio's mansion. <laughs> I mean, they were, they were prototypes rather than, you know, speculative objects. But yeah, I mean, Denunzio really wanted to have a radio-controlled torpedo, and the Italian military in World War I invented a radio-controlled torpedo. They just never put it into production because peace broke out, and like, what was the point? So the speculative element, would you say, is the mass production of the um, the radio-controlled tel- uh, torpedoes? The, the, the speculative element in the story is that my hero actually is a guy with a torpedo factory. So he's like, hey, I'm going to take this prized imaginary weapon and make it real. But if you read the text carefully, you can see that he's probably bullshitting about it. <laughs> I mean, he tells everybody he can make a flying radio torpedo, but you never see him actually test one. They just claim that they have one, right? Which is, or that they can make a bunch of them. It's like it's like the Israeli nuclear bomb, right? Like everybody knows the Israelis have weapons of mass destruction, maybe six, maybe sixty, but they've never tested one. They've never launched one. It's just you know they have the reputation for having them. And the reputation for having nukes is practically as good as having them, and maybe better in some ways. Because, you know, that way you, you don't get them stolen, you don't have to risk worry about them being hacked or blown up in their silos or, you know, a rogue general threatening the state. You know, if, if everybody just thinks you have them, it's like telling everybody you've got a shotgun in your bedroom. It's like nobody's going to barge through the door. <laughs> I mean, speaking of the futurists, one book title in here that kind of jumped out at me is The Manifesto of Futurist Lust. Yeah. Sounds kind of like an interesting book. It's quite interesting. I mean, it really exists. I mean, this woman, yeah, the woman who wrote that, Valentine de Sad Point, she was one of the first European women to be a futurist and then become a Muslim convert. And she, she ended her days as, you know, like an Egyptian Muslim, you know, nun, basically. I mean, she was really a weird character. I mean, kind of a crazy cabaret dancer. But, you know, there were a lot of seriously crazy women in, in, in Europe in the 1920s. I mean, that was, for feminism, that was really a, a golden era in a lot of ways. You had women doing things that no woman in history had ever dreamed of. I mean, they were radio talk show hosts. They were flying around the world as famous aviatrixes. You know, women in the, after World War One really uh we're really feeling their oats <laughs> well yeah and i mean there are a lot of characters in this book that are all i think all real i mean and i thought this was sort of striking to me because i don't know that i've ever read a novella before that starts off with a list of 22 characters at the beginning right um could you say why you wanted to include so many characters in this story well, you know, the editors wanted to put those guys in i mean you know the book the novella was also published in in italy and in italy nobody has to be told who those people are I mean, they're they're pretty famous, but you know, it, it's like starting a Shakespeare play with you know the dramatis personae, and you know sometimes the names are a bit hard to tell apart. So you know, if if, if Italian is not your first language or your second, so I think it actually helped, you know, and and also the map helps a lot. I mean, nobody in Italy has any trouble knowing what goes on in the Adriatic. That's their neighborhood, right? But uh, you know, if you're English or American or anybody else, it's very handy to have, you know, literally a map in the frontispiece of the book that just says, look, these guys are here and those guys are over there and, you know, the enemy's over here and so forth. I mean, do you want to say a little bit more about who some of the other real historical characters are that you include in the story? Uh, Well, yeah, there's the character who's called, you know, the Ace of Hearts in the book. Uh, Guido Keller was his his, uh, real name, who I think is you know, probably the most interesting guy in the in the enterprise of Fiume, because uh, he's this sort of former flying ace who's this, I don't know, mystical, he's a political liberation mystic, really. And, you know, when, when you see what he was doing and what he was saying and, and, and sort of w- how he personally wanted to live, he's like probably the first, the first, you know, genuine hippie who 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 whoever existed you know i mean guido keller's life is all about nudity 
drugs, music, poetry, you know, if it feels good, do it. Right. And, and you know, and he's, he's always doing these kinds of eccentric kind of Woodstockian gestures that you just don't see from political activists of his time. Like, you like to go sleep up a tree a lot. That's like, what serious political actor would like live in a tree house? But you know, that's a very it's 1967 hippie thing to do, right? And, and he's quite keen on it. It's like, why do you live in the tree house? Well, you know, I'm, I'm one with nature. I like the breezes. I can be naked up in my tree, you know. It's like, you know, and he's like completely serious about it, right? So if, if you're interested in the history of hippie attitudes, you know, it's just like, why did people behave in this particular kind of, you know, sexually liberated, drug liberated, you know, astrally psychedelic fashion? Uh, it didn't come out of nowhere. And he was one of the first people to really kind of try that, you know, and like really get in people's faces. <laughs> I mean, so what do you make of the characters' political views in the story? Do you have any sympathy for them or is it critique or how do you feel about it? Well, you know, I, I, I try not to be too terribly judgmental about it. I mean, there, there are a couple of pages where I break character and I just sort of describe what's going on. Um, but uh, I don't know. I mean, I, 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 I feel like it's almost too easy to kind of cop attitudes about it. It's like, well, fascism is bad. Okay. You know, yeah, fascism is bad, but it's not bad in the way that people imagine it is when you sort of say that it is bad, right? I mean, it's kind of like condemning Satan without ever reading Milton's Paradise Lost. <laughs> and not only that, but, that, you know, there was a lot of stuff going on in fascism that, um, you know, even the fascists themselves didn't really know about or understand, right? So, you know, rather than sort of saying this is the good guy and this is the bad guy and people should never do this and they should only do that, my attitude is more like, well, you know, situations show up when people kind of lose their wits and like unbelievable stuff goes on. And uh, I think that's actually a more productive way to look at things politically. You ought to um, you ought to think of politics as like, I mean, not like an art form, but it's sort of more like why are things in popular music the way they are, right? Or, you know, or why are things in philosophy or literature the way they are? And it's not because the boss or the ruler tells you how things are supposed to be. It's more like there are elements of the human condition where moments occur where there's great fertility for kind of good or bad or just ruptures in the texture of, of the normal. And believe me, what went on in the Fiume Enterprise was truly one of the weirdest things that happened in the 20th century. It's really, really a strange business. I mean, when you say that fascism wasn't bad in the way that people imagine, it was bad in a different way. What do you mean by that? Um, well, you know, I, I think, I mean, it's bad in some ways because it plays on people's virtues, right? It's not like fascism suddenly, I mean, if the fascists occupy you, it's very obvious how bad they are, right? Like, if you're just hanging around in Libya or Ethiopia and trying to, like, con conduct your daily life of, you know, raising grain, herding the goats, weaving your rugs, you know, just going about your business, then when the fascists arrive, it's obviously very sinister because they, like, they take complete control, they subject everybody, they treat you as a racial inferior, and anybody who speaks up just gets beaten or shot. So if you're under fascist occupation, there's very little question that you're suffering a lot and that they're really bad, right? Even though they, they will like propagandize you and so forth, they're contempt for you, really. Their racial contempt for you and their cultural contempt for you is so overwhelming that you never believe that, right? But if you're inside the fascist tent, it's all about patriotism and the allure of self-sacrifice and how we're bringing civilization to other people and we're resolving, you know, age old conflicts in our own society by, you know, uniting around our great leader, the Duce or, you know, the, the Fuhrer, you know, and, and it's actually like, 
exciting. You know, it's like thrilling. I mean, like you go out into the squares, there's like a hundred thousand people all around you. They're all shouting for the same thing. They're making the same arm gestures. There's like tremendous light shows, fantastic music. You know, the women are excited. Even the five-year-old child thinks it's great. Your grandparents are overwhelmed by the pageantry, right? You really feel like your civilization is like gotten up on its feet and achieved something fantastic. You know, and people don't understand this kind of um, brutal alveolar of this kind of uh, totalitarianism, right? I mean, it is totalizing, and you get sucked into it. This kind of no room outside of it. You actually say in the book that fascism has some of the same allure as science fiction in a weird way? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's, it's because it has this kind of um, singularity, kind of, you know, rapture about it. Just like, okay, maybe it really wouldn't be that great an idea for like, let's say, you know, take a great science fictional text like um, Arthur Clarke and Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey, right? You like watch a 2001 and it's got like the monolith and like the monolith's like mysterious and great and cool and it's kind of evolutionary and there's like something scientific about it. And then at the end there's like, this moment when, like, the astronaut turns into the giant space baby, right? And you're like, okay, wow, you know, he's like, he's become the giant space baby. But, you know, it's not like anybody voted on the space baby, right? I mean, there's not like an ethics commission that went and, like, wrote about the space baby. Nobody sort of says, well, wait a minute. What if the space baby turns out to be cruel to certain ethnic minorities, right? I mean, the space baby is just a, a state complete. Right. It's a fait accompli. I mean, the space baby just sort of happens and he's like superhuman. Right. I mean, he's the infant of some higher state. Right. And OK, that's a great science fictional move because it kind of appeals to the sense of wonder and it's transcendent. But, you know, it also obliterates kind of political rationalism or skepticism or, you know, a kind of a loyal opposition. There aren't two space babies, right? I mean, there's not like the other space baby who doesn't want to do what space baby one wants to do, right? I mean, space baby one is just like, he's it, you know? He's, he's the ubermensch, right? And, and, and I, I don't want to say that Arthur Clarke is a fascist or that Stanley Kubrick is a fascist. On the contrary, Stanley, Stanley Kubrick is very... Aware politically, I mean, he's the guy who directed Doctor Strangelove and you know, uh, 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 Full Metal Jacket and these other kinds of things. I mean, Stanley Kubrick, very intelligent guy. Uh, I'm just saying that, um, you know, there, there, there's kind of there's a kind of rhetorical trick that goes on in science fiction uh, and in fascism that kind of says, you know, don't really worry about what this means to like the guy next door or whomever. It's just like, it's so cool and amazing that you should just surrender yourself to the rapture of its fantasticness. And, you know, and, and I, as a science fiction reader and writer, I completely get it about that. You know, and in some ways it's good. I mean, if, if you don't have a sense of wonder, it's like you're dead inside, but you know, your sense of wonder can be used to trick you. Right. I mean, you can have a sense of wonder over a thing that's basically a conjurer's trick or a put-up job or, you know, a con job or a rip-off. And, you know, it, 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 it's not a simple black and white matter. On the contrary, it's easy to kind of, like, get yourself all wrapped up in, um, in this sense of wonderment and kind of be sincere about it and really, um, you know... Devote yourself to it and just ending, end up bleeding out. And I mean, somebody's going to shoot you. I mean, you're going to be defeated if you're a fascist. You know, because it works great for you, but it doesn't work for, at all well for the guys that you just invaded. Right? I mean, you're going to breed your own opposition through this kind of sense of your own wonderfulness. Well, I mean, speaking of science fiction, one thing that was interesting, I thought, is that you actually have H.P. Lovecraft and Robert E. Howard appear as characters in this book. I was just curious what you uh, what the thought process was behind that. Well, they were actually in my mind before the thing started. 
I mean, I was I was looking at you know what was going on in Fiume and thinking about what was going on in the United States at the same time. And of course, that was the era of, of Lovecraft. Uh, you know, Lovecraft is well known in science fiction circles for his uh, fondness for Hitler and uh, you know his, his racial attitudes. I mean, if, if you read Lovecraft, it, it's full of the same kind of uh, you know proto-fascist sentiments that were eventually crystallized by guys like Mussolini and Hitler. It's just that at the time, nobody nobody cared. I mean, it, it wasn't seen as a bad thing. I mean, Mo- Lovecraft was was from Providence, Rhode Island. And he was famous for really resenting the Italians in Providence, Rhode Island. There were Italians all over the place. And if you read Lovecraft's letters, you know, he's like, he, he, he really despises them. He thinks the Italians are some kind of uneducated, you know, dirty underclass of people whose, who's, you know, presence in his streets, you know, he, he resents bitterly. I mean, I mean, he, he has the attitude toward them that like, people have towards Syrian emigres now. It's just like, okay, what are these? Who are these people and why are they here? So I thought it was, I thought there was something um, useful and interesting about making Lovecraft and, and, you know, and Robert E. Howard, who's of course the most famous early Texan science fiction writer into characters. And it kind of like, um, it puts the genre on the hook in a way, you know, it's kind of saying, okay, we science fiction writers are also participants and, uh, you know, our ideas, uh, our, our ideas have some consequence here. And, you know, the ideas in, in Fiume and Rieka were very far out, but the ideas of science fiction at that era and the ideas of science fiction today are, are, are far out in a similar kind of fashion. Like what happens when, you take these ideas that are basically fantastic and try to apply them practically on a, on a political, in a political life. Right. And, um, I don't know. I mean, people wonder what they're doing there, but I, I see them as being participants. Well, it's interesting because you have them working, you have Lovecraft and Howard working with Harry Houdini, uh, in the espionage field. And you say that that's actually not as far-fetched as it might sound? No, no, they, that, that happened. I mean, Houdini had a lot of fans in the spy industry, uh, such as it was at the time. Uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of documentary evidence about Houdini's involvement with American espionage. And they had good reason to hang out with him. I mean, he was a useful guy to know. And uh, Houdini actually hired Lovecraft, you know, on, on occasion to do some ghostwriting for him. And, you know, Houdini was carrying out a war against, uh, you know, spiritualists and these kind of superstitious table knocker people who were trying to raise spirits. And uh, Lovecraft uh, also despised that kind of stuff. So the two of them actually had rather a lot to talk about. And besides Lovecraft was so broke that he was willing to work cheap. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, Houdini and Lovecraft knew one another historically, and they even had things in common. And, uh, you know, to, to throw Robert E. Howard in there as a teenager is a bit of a stretch, but, you know, Lovecraft knew a lot of teenage science fiction fans, and uh, he certainly knew Robert E. Howard. Well, right. And speaking of writers being poor, I heard you say that Robert E. Howard would actually type new stories in between the lines of his old stories to save pa- to save money on paper. I'd never heard that before. He did that. Yeah. I mean, Robert E. Howard actually made was a successful pulp writer. He, he was not a poor guy uh, when he when he shot himself. He was actually doing pretty well as an American fiction writer. But, you know, if you're like a science fiction writer in the 20s, 30s, 40s, you were guaranteed to be a poor guy. I mean, the there weren't very many rich aristocratic science fiction writers. I mean, you were writing for the pulps. You were scraping the bottom of the barrel. It's like uh, Ray Bradbury, his most famous book, Fahrenheit 451. He typed that book on a rented, uh, on a rented typewriter, like a, a coin-operated typewriter. We had to put in a dime, and you would get like an hour's worth of use of the machine. And then you had to like put in another time in order to go on typing. And you're thinking, how the heck could Ray Bradbury possibly do this? But, you know, everybody that he knew was doing that. I mean, it was the Depression. And also to be a freelance writer is just, 
I mean, it's well rewarded if you're famous, but if you're an unknown freelance writer, man, you're the starving artist, flat out. Yeah, well, <laughs> I know about that. Yeah. Um, That's how it is. I mean, you say, I, I thought this was interesting, you say that people make fun of Lovecraft, but for the wrong reasons. Could you say what you mean by that? Uh, well, you know, I think he's like a figure from silent film, you know. It's just been a long time. Um, I mean, people in silent film have all kinds of cliches about what was going on in silent movies. They think, oh, it's all about girls tied to railroad tracks. Okay, there aren't any silent movies with girls tied to railroad tracks. I mean, it's a cliche, but it doesn't really exist at all, right? And everybody has, like, ideas about what Lovecraft was into, but they don't go into, like, the tall weeds. I mean, they don't actually, like, read Lovecraft's letters or read the letters of other people. They don't understand what, like, amateur press associations were. They don't, they don't understand Hugo Gernsback. They don't understand radio parts catalogs. They don't understand the relationship between guys like Gernsback and Tesla. I mean, when you get, I mean, you know, with the passage of time, you have to kind of pack things down and compress them. But then when you go back to the original documentation, you realize that their lives were every bit as complicated as ours, and in some ways more so, right? So, I mean, people would say things like, Lovecraft was an, an anti-Semite. Okay, Lovecraft was a racist, but he wasn't a racist against Jews. He had this completely different kind of racism that, I mean, he's like his wife was Jewish, right? He, he had like uh, ideas about race that really no longer hold water. I mean, people aren't even aware of them. He had like ideas about race that were sort of based in the ideas of Herbert Spencer and kind of ideas of like genetic entropy or inbreeding, right? That, that were kind of pseudo-scientific, but like based in doctrines that like, you know, even contemporary fascists know nothing about, right? So, I mean, yeah, he was a racist, but he wasn't a racist as we understand racism right now, right? And kind of, I mean, he, he had weird ideas, but they weren't irrational weird ideas. They were all ideas that were kind of based in the science of his time. And, uh, you know, people who write about Lovecraft, uh, you know, they, they imagine him as this kind of weakling or, you know, uh, a kind of uh, a, a timorous figure or a guy who was afraid all the time because he wrote horror fiction. But then when you look at Lovecraft's actual relationships to people, you know, in most of most of his daily interactions, people around Lovecraft really respected him a lot. I mean, they, they considered him a gentleman, a very well-educated guy, you know, possibly a great writer. You know, he knew lots of young people who really looked up to him. His colleagues in Weird Tales thought he was the best writer in Weird Tales. Oh. You know, Guys who were, you know, arty science fiction people, Clark Ashton Smith, you know, Robert E. Howard, they thought the world of Lovecraft, they really considered him, you know, kind of a, the guru of their group. So, I don't know. I mean, you, you, have to, uh, you have to be willing to kind of drop the blinders there and go look at people sympathetically, uh, not through your own lens, but just try to understand how they experienced life. Well, it's interesting because the Lovecraft character in your story seems to have had some sort of political conversion as a result of having a son. Yeah, I think so. I mean, fatherhood has a big change on men. And, uh, you know, it's like, why would Lovecraft? I mean, Lovecraft was famous for, not, he's not famous, but maybe the most significant thing that happened in his life was when he left Providence, his hometown, and actually tried to make a go of it in New York. Uh, you know, he, he basically knew, moved to New York in order to marry one of his pen pals, who was his wife, Sonia Green, who was, you know, a hat maker, but a wannabe writer in the American Press Association. So the two of them were like writing these kind of tender letters to one another. And then Lovecraft, who's like basically alone in Providence, says, you know what? I'm just going to like make a go of it. I'm going to like throw everything out. And I'm going to like cast myself into the arms of this romantic Jewish woman with her like hat store and like, I'm going to like move to Manhattan. 
And, you know, that was very courageous of him, but the marriage didn't work out, right? So, you know, eventually he just left her and he went back to Providence and kind of grew ever more lonely and cranky. But, you know, imagine that he had gone to New York and, like, he and Sonia had had a child. Well, you know, Lovecraft was always the gentleman, and there was no way that he would have, like, abandoned a wife and child. You know, it's just not done in the period. So you have to imagine him casting about for some means to <laughs> to support his young family. And I thought it was, like, uh, plausible that he would he would enter advertising. Because, you know, because why not? I mean, that's what people do in New York, right? I mean, you could write for Harry Houdini. He's not going to pay you very much. But if you want to just write copy and get a lot of money for it, Madison Avenue is where it's at. So the idea of, uh, you know, uh, Lovecraft as a uh, copywriter, I I guess, seems a bit cynical. But I don't think it's even particularly far-fetched. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about this one blurb. So uh, James Morrow on this book, he calls it an allegory of our present geopolitics. I was just curious if you see it that way. Uh, yeah, I think we've got a lot of, I mean, I wouldn't call it an allegory per se, but I think the confusion that we have now, um, and, and, and especially the kind of new wave of um, you know, anti-global neo-nationalism, is very similar to what was going on after the end of World War One. You know, I mean, after the end of World War One, it was kind of the breakdown of large empires like the German Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Suddenly, there are all these states kind of popping up and asserting their own rights, and you know, the, the European Union's coming apart. We've got like a lot of frozen conflict areas. Uh, where you know people would like to be nations, but they can't get it to, together to be nations. And um, I also think there's just a kind of similar political obscurantism, you know, going on that's like similar to the kind of um, Denunzio style of uh, poetic post-truthism, you know, because Denunzio was a poet and really a great poet. And if you went to live in Fiume during the 20, 22 months or whatever that it was a going business, you were basically living on this guy's lectures because the economy collapsed, you know, business collapsed. There was nothing else except to listen to him carry on as a demagogue. And he was a great demagogue. And we've got a lot of people who just want to sit down with their bowl of porridge and eat that demagoguery right now. I mean, th- there's this quote from you I came across this, where you say, I'm an entertainer in the military entertainment complex. And I was just wondering, how does that figure into this? I, you know, I, I think that was a pretty good thing to say about 15 years ago, because we had a military entertainment complex. Because, you know, you, I mean, people talk about the military industrial complex. And I think that still exists to an extent. But the military entertainment complex is more like Nintendo War, right? It's like, okay, we have the war and we put the war through the major media channels and, you know, and people kind of go through that. And like the war is a game, you know, the war is kind of inherently entertaining. And we're like, we we have, you know, we have military problems, but they're kind of, they're kind of filtered through our media structure. And I got it about that because, you know. I knew a lot about war and, you know, I, I'm not a military guy, but I, I was interested in the troubles of the time or, or else I wouldn't, I wouldn't be living part of my time in Belgrade. Uh, but I, I think that era is now gone. I mean, we don't really have a military entertainment complex of the kind. We have, we have a military and we have social media. I mean, because what, what that quote sort of suggested to me was that almost you can't help but become complicit in some of these systems. But do you feel that that's, I don't, do you agree with that? Or do you think that you can actually sort of fight the system as a, uh, by you know, selling? I, I actually think that you can drop out, you know, or, or like establish an alternate way of life, uh, you know, which is why I'm, I'm a big fan of Václav Havel. I mean, Václav Havel, you know, the famous uh, Czech rebel of the Velvet Revolution, there's like a dissident playwright, hippie rock and roll fan who, you know, became president of the Czech Republic eventually. 
I mean, Havel wrote a number of essays, you know, about living in truth, which I think are very useful and interesting uh, right now. I mean, kind of more so, more interesting now than they were when he wrote them in, in the early 1980s, which are like, okay, if you're surrounded by organized deceit, what can you do to kind of maintain your own sincerity and not become complicit in the oppression, right? And he had some kind of useful advice on, on how to do that and really, you know, how to live the kind of pre-89 or nine, you know, dissonant life. And I don't think you have to be complicit, but, you know, you're complicit in some ways just because you're like a human being, right? I mean, you're like using the same language as other people, you know, you're you're married to people, your relatives are like them. And I don't think complicit is like necessarily a pejorative term. I think it's more like engagement, right? And I think engagement is important. I mean, you can do the kinds of things Havel talked about. It's like, okay, I'm I'm going to like kind of appoint myself a moral leader and kind of refuse to have anything to do with this. I'm like the resistance. But even Havel himself didn't stay that way. I mean, when people actually wanted him to become head of state, he famously said, look, you know, I can't spend my whole life complaining about the situation and then do nothing constructive when I have the chance to do it, right? And you can't say that, like, the president of the country is, like, not complicit in the country, right? I mean, yeah, I mean, he was the president. He was like the president for like two or three terms. So, you know, the complicity is like a thing that kind of comes and goes and like goes with other situations. And, you know, I mean, I, I have I have my own relationship to kind of Italy as a country. I'm very interested in it. Uh, I like Italian literature a lot. They are the country that was the birthplace of fascism. But I don't think I'm complicit with fascism. What I would like to be is like engaged with the Italian historical experience. It's like, why did the people in this region behave as they did, right? And I don't I don't think it's fair of me to sort of say, well, you know, I never did that. And I'm like an American. And, you know, we had nothing to do with what you were doing, right? And so we can kind of condemn it rigorously and have nothing to do with you. I mean... That strikes me as like bad literature. It might be like effective politics in some ways. It's like, look, we're different from you, very different from you, and we're going to tell you how to behave, and you should behave like this. I mean, there are circumstances where a nation can say that to another nation, and it's actually helpful. But for somebody who's like engaged with the experience of people in a society, you, you shouldn't sort of say, you know, I love you for your virtues, but I hate you for your sins. On the contrary, you sort of have to say, you know, I, I understand your value system and why your virtues are sometimes your sins. I wanted to ask you about this quote in the afterword. Um, there's an afterword written by Christopher Brown, and he talks about how various segments of society have given up on the idea of presenting an optimistic future. And so it's fallen to science fiction writers to do that. But then he goes on to say that most science fiction writers find that it, it's dystopia that actually pays the bills. That's very, I mean, that's very weird. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm like a guy in my sixties now and, you know, the idea of dystopia paying the bills, <laughs> it's like a super alien idea for a guy who, grew up reading commercial sci-fi in the 1960s and 1970s. Because, you know, if you wrote a dystopia in that period, it was like, okay, you, you really have to go, you know, beat the knuckles of Ace Books or Ballantine Books or the other, you know, major sci-fi publishers of the period to get them to print a book with a downbeat ending. <laughs> it's, just, it's just not something you would do at all. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I mean, dystopia actually sells pretty well now, but it doesn't sell anywhere near as well. It's just like complete fantasy kind of, you know, teenage vampire books or, you know, Harry Potter books or, you know, Game of Thrones or epic sort of gameable fantasies are what really sell. Dystopias don't really sell all that well. They sell kind of OK, but um, they're not they're not the major imaginative genres the subgenres of, of our era. 
And, you know, but, but I, I think Chris is right in that optimism sells even less. I mean, if you, if you try to, like, write a sci-fi anthology or something, which sort of says, boy, you know, it's 2017 and things are going great. It's like, let's lift our chin up. I mean, it's just such an obvious phoniness about that whole idea. Nobody believes it. I mean, the old don't believe it. The young don't believe it. The right doesn't believe it. The left doesn't believe it. And the only major group who believes that kind of thing are, are the Chinese. I mean, the, the Chinese have the only kind of majority optimist population going right now. You know, and, and everybody else has, I think, a much more realistic assessment of, of the nature of contemporary living. And, uh, you know, I think optimism is okay, but false optimism is, is, is wicked. I mean, it's really hypocrisy and um, not a sort of thing you should do. I was actually curious, really curious to ask you about the, the period you were just talking about where, uh, you know, the science fiction publishers wouldn't, wouldn't publish dystopias and things like that. This is what led you to edit your fanzine Cheap Truth. Do I have that right? No, not really. I mean, that was actually the struggle of an earlier generation. That's more like the new wave struggle of the 1960s, where you had like a lot of upbeat sci-fi writers who were, you know, basically space age enthusiasts. And then you had all these, you know, dropouts and refuseniks who were like against the Vietnam War. And, um, you know, they were like, oh, this is terrible. You know, we're like into a a gruesome kind of, a, a, you know, a, a apocalypse now situation and you had a lot of science fiction writers of the older generation were like come on we're going to defeat communism they'll be reeling you know things are going to be great and you know in some ways they were right i mean the 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 right wing guys of the period were correct that the west was going to defeat communism they did defeat communism you know and in the the 1990s things were kind of great for for a little while it's just that history doesn't end and things just get get really complicated but you know there's still a school of you know science fiction writers that that are kind of you know the pep talk school that are like why are we writing about the future and trying to convince people it's going to be terrible uh isn't there something morally suspect about that and you know in a way it's true it's like being in some kind of gothic rock band where your problem is like to make teenagers feel more unhappy about themselves (laughs) How hard can that be, you know? <laughs> it's just why are you why are you like making the effort to be a downer? Uh you know, and I and I understand that situation. Uh but um you know, I, I don't like to I don't know, I, I, I don't like to be untrue to myself, really. But I mean I mean cheap truth is described as um sort of attacking quote the stagnant state of popular science fiction. What was the stagnancy at that time? Well, you know, the real the real cheap truth slogan was uh, the honesty of complete desperation, which I think is is kind of is kind of good. You know, it's like, OK, we're just going to like write under pseudonyms and kind of like lay it on the line here. And I think that can be that can be very brisk and refreshing. Um, I mean, I think, you know, the, the stagnation we were decrying was not as complete as it was. I mean, there was stuff going on in the 1970s that looks pretty dynamic, uh, you know, compared to what we're doing now. But I think if you're if you're writing literary manifestos, which we were definitely doing, what you're really saying is like, I want to overcome my own stagnation. Right. Just like I don't know what to do. And I'm looking for like a fresh breeze where I can raise my sails. You know, at that point, it's like, okay, look, this seems to be a breeze. Let's like put the sails up. And, you know, and if that happens, then, hey, man, you're like moving right along and things are groovy. And, uh, you know, you just shouldn't. uh, I mean, when I go back and look at writings of that kind, I can see that I'm like I'm chiding other people a little bit. But mostly I'm giving pep talks to myself and people in my inner circle. And so why were you using pseudonyms? Were you f- afraid people would stop publishing you or what was the concern? Um, you know, I, I just like writing under other voices, really. It's like, it's it's kind of a personal quirk. I mean, we, you know, in point of fact, people were very kind to us cyberpunks, critically speaking. I mean, we've always been critics' darlings compared to like the hell that like new wave writers 
of the 1960s went through, who were like, you know, really pretty rigorously condemned by the status quo. I mean, just they were like not okay. On the contrary, you know, people in the 1980s, you know, and even late 1970s were really happy and pleased to see a generation of science fiction writers come up who wanted to talk about computers. No? I mean, nobody nobody was cruel to us. I mean, I, I don't even get flamed by people on Twitter, which is kind of weird. You know, I, you know, we, we had like kind of a few quarrels with people as cyberpunks. I mean, they were like, you know, there were debates, but by the standards of like literary literary quarrels, we were actually we had a very friendly reception, and we we really don't have any enemies. You know, it's hard to find somebody in science fiction who doesn't admire William Gibson. You know, I mean, there's kind of no, there's no organized anti-William Gibson sensibility. On the contrary, it's, you know, you either sort of like him or you really, really like him. You know, which is strange for a strange thing for a literary movement. Um, and you know that 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 was so we were fortunate in that. But we also had like just a lot of groundwork to do and trying to decide what we wanted to talk about and what kind of voice we were going to have and, you know, what our topics were and kind of what, what our approach was. And really the, the, the best way to do that is in a small press publication, really, really a fanzine. You don't want to trouble the whole world with that. You want to trouble about 300 guys. <laughs> I mean, does your experience editing that fanzine, do you have any advice for other people who might want to do a science fiction fanzine? You know, it's it's impossible to do it on paper anymore. You know, I mean, maybe you could do it on paper. You know, I, I don't really have advice. I mean, this is a very peculiar media situation that we're in now. Um, you, I mean, we were doing it with like Xerox, Xerox prints, you know, and, and kind of, I mean, Cheap Truth was famously uncopyrighted. You were supposed to go out and, like, make copies of it. Uh, it was kind of an early attempt at, like, open source documentation. But that era is just long gone. And it's like going out and telling people to do something on, on Super 8 film or 16 millimeter. It's just gone. So, um, I mean, the only advice I would have is to, like, find people your own age, right? I mean, if you're really going to do something new, you cannot trust people my age to tell you, to give you good advice. They will give you advice that they think is good, but they just don't know what's happening. And if you imitate them, you're going to be reduced to pastiche. You really have to find guys your own age, women your own age, you know, um, and try to establish your own cultural sensibility of your own period. Okay, well, my next question was going to be, do you have any advice for science fiction podcasters? But I guess I'll have to go ask somebody my own age about that. I think that would be good. You know, I, I kind of like podcasts. I listen to a few. Uh, but, you know, I, I'm not really a big fan of spoken word or radio. And uh, People often told me I should do my own podcast, but, you know, I, I, I don't really fancy myself in that, in that line of work. I mean, I'm very grateful that there are people who are still science fiction critics and, um, I'm also grateful for the input of science fiction fandom. You know, I think it's it's great that there are people who are not professional writers, who aren't editors, are not critics, are not in academia, who just are willing to sort of sort of say, you know, hi, you know, I'm like Joe from East St. Louis, and like I read these five books this month, and I think this one's good, and this one's other, this other one is not good. I think that's been true of the genre since the 1920s. And I would hate to see us lose that kind of ground truth. I think it's it's really important to the nature of the genre that there there aren't these huge divisions between uh, you know fandom and prodom. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so Bruce, so we're pretty much out of time. So just to wrap things up, is there anything else you want to mention? Any other projects or posts or anything you want to point people to? You know, we we spent a lot of time talking about Italy here, and you know, people have read this novella of mine pirate utopia and they think boy like what a weird thing they don't realize i've written like 10 other fantascienza stories about italy right because uh, i have right so you know I, I, i've like spent my time in italy becoming an italian fantascienza writer 
and I think this is the year I'm actually going to write my Italian fantascienza novel. Right? I mean, many people have asked me, it's like, why is it Pirate Utopia novel? I don't think there's enough there to make a novel, but I actually think I have a topic now, which is going to be like, you know, the Bruce Sterling novel. And I haven't written one in like five or six years because I didn't feel the need. But I actually do feel the need now. And, you know, hopefully if we're not, uh, you know, new, uh, incinerated in the Donald Trump apocalypse, <laughs> which, which is something I'm not real worried about, by the way, <laughs> I think I'm actually going to like write a new book with like a refreshing and interesting topic. And I think it's going to be kind of lighthearted and adventurous book. And, you know, I, I, I hope that works out. <laughs> All right. Well, definitely looking forward to that. And so we've been speaking with Bruce Sterling and this new book again, it's called Pirate Utopia. And so, Bruce, thank you so much for joining us. Good luck with that, David. You keep after it. <laughs> thank you. Bye. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Bruce Sterling for joining us on the show. Special thanks as well to Martin Wimbish, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time or fixed monthly contribution, you can do that via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. I'd also like to thank Audible and Adam Tickets for sponsoring today's show. As the host of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy, I need to watch a lot of the new movies that come out, and sometimes I even have friends to go with me, hard as that may be to believe. Well, Adam Tickets makes it easy to plan those sorts of movie outings right on your phone. You select the movies you'd like to see, select a range of possible times, and then pick which friends you'd like to invite, with all your friends' info imported automatically from your contacts. Your friends receive alerts which let them vote on which movie they want to see and when, and then you decide what the final plan will be, and you can easily buy tickets for yourself and anyone else you choose. I tried out the app this week when my girlfriend Stephanie and I went to see the new film Hidden Figures, about a trio of African-American women who are vital to the U.S. space program, which incidentally is a movie I highly, highly recommend. An hour or so before the movie, I used the app to buy tickets for Stephanie and myself, and I also used the app to purchase a snack from the concession stand. When I got to the theater, I walked up to the concession stand, got in a special line for Adam Tickets customers, and picked up my snack by scanning the QR code on my phone. Then I showed that same QR code to the person collecting tickets in order to get into the movie. When Stephanie arrived a bit later, she showed the QR code on her phone to the person collecting tickets and came and joined me in the theater. So we were able to bypass both the line to buy tickets and the line to buy snacks. Because of her schedule, Stephanie is often running late if we go to see a movie on a weeknight. And if I've paid for her ticket, it can be a real pain because the movie will start before she gets there. And then I have to keep an eye out for her text and hurry out to the lobby so that I can give her her ticket. So using the Adam Tickets app made that a lot easier because everything she needed was right there on her phone. So if you want to check out the app, it's called Adam Tickets, A-T-O-M Tickets, and it's available now from the App Store or Google Play. And remember that you can also get $5 off your first order by using the promo code GALAXY. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.